0: Today we have a guest speaker from Northview Community Church, Levi Friesen. Levi Friesen is a pastoral intern and he's gonna be walking us through Exodus 19. So we're just gonna pray for Levi and then we'll get started. Father, we love you, we love Levi, and even more than that, you love him and you love us. So what we wanna pray first of all is that your love would be expressed Mm -hmm. and also that you would just like soften our hearts, open our ears to whatever it is you wanna speak in and through Levi today. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, Excited to get to open God's Word and study it together. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. We're going to be moving from verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 25. Um, When I haven't worked church-related jobs, the kind of work I've tended to do is uh, janitorial positions. And the first one of those jobs I ever had uh, was working at the Cultus Lake waterslides. I was a janitorial assistant, was my technical title. And I remember on my first day of work, my dad, I uh, didn't have my license yet, so my dad had to be the one to drive me out to Cultus Lake. We lived in the Sumash Prairies. We were, I can still see it, driving those long straight back roads, quiet, obviously an early summer morning. Uh, and he turned to me and he said something uh, that has resonated with me ever since. He said, you're, you're starting your first job today, And what you need to know is that the kind of employee that you are, the kind of work that you do, says a lot more than just something about yourself. See, when you go to work, you are representing our family. You're representing me, my dad, your grandfather. You're talking about the kind of family that you've come from. And not only that, when people at your work find out you're a Christian, the way in which you work says something about your church. Says something about the God that you say you love and you follow. So that means that when you are going about your work, you need to go above and beyond. You're not going to take extra time on your lunch break. You're not going to try and uh, avoid work when there is work to be done. You're going to go and see how much extra help you can be to your boss or your supervisor or your coworkers. Because what you do is about more than just you, it's part of a bigger picture that you belong to. That's something that resonated with me significantly. That's the first time 16-year-old Levi ever realized that what he did was about more than just himself, but was about a whole larger picture that I belonged to. Uh, Exodus 19 is a passage that helps us to see that about our Christian lives, the Christian things that we do. See, uh, in the chapters to follow, what we're going to see is as God continues to form a people for himself, he's going to give them his law the rules and the commandments that they are to live by. But before he does that, our story today is one that prompts us to think about how the law and how our obedience fits into a bigger picture. It's a story where God is going to remind people why they want to obey, why they should be people who follow him. The basic point of the story, the point of my sermon, is live like you are God's treasured people. Live like you are God's treasured people. And so we're going to make that point by following the movements of this story. We're going to see how God saved us, how we are his treasured people, and how he is our holy God. Those are going to be the three sections that we move through as we see how we are to live like we are God's treasured people. So first, God saved us. Uh, Moses begins this chapter by returning our attention to what has happened leading up to this point. He wants to connect the, the commands that they are going to receive to the story that they are a part of. And he does so by way of a, of a quick turn of phrase in verse 1 of Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. This is a very shorthand way for Moses to summarize the really dramatic story which happened earlier in the book of Exodus. Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God brought them out. Uh, It's always something that they need to keep in mind whenever they read these things. See, Moses isn't just writing this down for the first people who are going to read his words. He's writing it down for the generations to come. He wants them to always remember that God has saved them. And he reiterates this in verse 4. He does it in a bit of a poetic way. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Everything God is going to call them to do is going to flow out from this reminder. He has saved them for himself. Uh, You you may be uh, familiar with videos on the internet that people use to document the way in which they saved a a stray dog, or a a dog that had been abandoned, right? The videos start, you've seen them, where the dog is in a parking lot or or hiding somewhere, and it's snarling, it's yowling, it's yapping, it doesn't let the person get close, it backs under a vehicle every time they try to make contact. But eventually, usually by bringing food to this emaciated, starved creature, the, the rescuer begins to build trust. draws the dog out from under the park bench, Uh, builds up the, the trust with the animal to even offer it some gentle pets on the top of the head, eventually puts the leash around the dog's neck and brings it home, takes it to the vet, gets it all cleaned up and taken care of, gives it a warm place to live, maybe some kids to play with. This is all that happens before the dog is trained. Right? Yes, eventually you want your dog that you've brought into your house to be obedient, to be uh, responsive to your instructions, but the order matters. The rescue happens first, and then the training takes place. This is how Moses wants these people to remember what God has done for them. He has saved them from Egypt to be his people. He has given them a new lease on life. It's not salvation they earned, it's not salvation they even deserved, but it is a free gift of the God who loves them. And at this point in the story, uh, we should see that, in fact, our own situation already runs parallel to that of the Israelite people. See, uh, the work God did in saving them from Egypt was, yes, really big and really dramatic and was super important, but it was simply the first story of many wherein God was going to do similar things, all of which pointed to the ultimate work of salvation that he was going to do in Jesus. See, if you are a Christian, you have received the salvation that is like your exodus. First uh, Peter 2 verse 10 talks about this and says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, just as the Israelites at one point lived in enslavement in Egypt, they were not yet God's people, and then he saved them to be his people. Peter is saying, same thing for the church. Once before you knew Jesus, you were not God's people. But because God has been merciful to you now, you are his people now. The order matters. He has saved you. And your Christian life is fundamentally and forever first and foremost about what God has done to save you. See, I think oftentimes we get tempted to get the order all, all mixed up and all turned around. See, if I were to ask you what it is that makes you a Christian, there might be lots of different things that you say. Well, I, uh, I try to read my Bible every day. I try to pray every day, a couple times a day. I try to be generous with my stuff. I try to spend time with Christian friends and Christian community. Maybe, maybe I watch church online. These are all good things. These are all important things, but none of them are what makes you a Christian at the end of the day. See, it's always first about what God has done to save. And when we get that order mixed up, all of those good things become really burdensome things because we put in them weight they were never supposed to carry. See, if you read your Bible because you think it makes you a Christian, how are you going to feel when you don't read it? You're going to feel like, maybe I was never actually a Christian in the first place. But if your story of following Jesus always begins with God's saving work first, you have a secure foundation from which to do those good things, to grow and enjoy the life you have with God because of what he has done. See, Moses wants the people to remember what you and I need to remember, that God has saved us. This is why he connects to the larger story before he gives his exhortations, because we need to get the order right. Everything that he says is going to be in light of what God has done. And he is going to say more. In fact, what he turns to say next is something really significant about who we are in light of what God has done. He's going to talk about how we are God's treasured people. In verses 5 to 9 of our story is where we get into that. This is the part of the story that contains some really elevated descriptions of what it means to be God's people. In verses 5 and 6, we read, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God tells Moses to pass on to the people. Here is what is true of you when you live as my people. You are my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's worth us taking each of those three things in order. And what we're going to see is that the first is a, a general truth, which is clarified by the two that follow. So first, Moses is told to relay to the people that when they obey, they are God's treasured possession. Not that their obedience earns them any standing with God. Remember, he has saved them already. But as they obey, as they live in light of what God has done, they are the crown jewel of all that he has. And what he has is everything. He reiterates that all the peoples of the earth are his. He has made them and he loves them. But Israel belongs to him in a unique way. So that's the the first aspect, but then it's clarified what that actually looks like. He, he says, when you obey, you are a kingdom of priests. And as we think about that term, it's a weird one, not one that you ever use to refer to a group of your friends or anything like that. But priests performed a, a, a function that we're all pretty familiar with. They mediated between God and the people. And this is true in every major religion that has a priesthood of some kind. The priests represented the people to God and God to the people. So what Israel was doing when they obeyed God, when they upheld the covenant, when they lived according to God's ways, was they were representing as an entire nation God to the world. They were saved not just to enjoy their relationship with God, but they certainly were saved to enjoy their relationship with God. But they were given a mission when they were saved, to be a people who points to the God who has saved them they were a kingdom of priests. But again uh, Moses goes on to clarify that they are also a holy nation and to us that sounds like an image maybe of separation. Right? You, you, when you are holy you are not a part of what is unholy. To be holy means to be separate. The, another word that's used in our text is consecrate to set yourself apart. So to be a holy nation, yes, at some level meant to be separate, to be different, to be distinct from the nations around. But it wasn't just separation for the point of separation or separation for the point of pride, to look down on those who were not holy like they had been made holy. But rather, they were to be separate so that their witness as a kingdom of priests would be all the more clear. We separate ourselves because there is something true about the God that we serve who has saved us. He is holy, so we are holy. See, ultimately, Israel was supposed to be a blessed people who enjoyed a blessed life with their blessing God for the sake of the world around them, to be a light that points to him. Uh, In the last number of weeks and months, uh, the province of Alberta has run a campaign called Alberta is Calling. I mean, it's a, a campaign that they've pointed specifically at people in Toronto and Vancouver. So I've seen a few of their advertisements, heard a couple of them. And the basic premise is, hey, hey we're going to uh, point out all the really good things about Alberta and bring them to the attention of people in Toronto and Vancouver to see if we can get some of them to come and move to our province. Uh, so they, they point out things like, uh, do you like saving money? Do you want to be able to buy a house with a yard? Do you want to not have to take out a second mortgage to buy a tank of gas? Come to Alberta. Uh, Do you like the job that you've trained in but have a hard time finding work because it's so competitive where you are? Come to Alberta. You can work the job of your dreams and find fulfillment and good pay here. Do you like sunshine? I think this one's targeted specifically at Vancouver. Uh, Alberta is the sunniest province. We have over 300 days of sun a year. I've lived in BC uh, for 26 years. I think we might have had 300 days of sun since I was born, right? They they play up the best parts about Alberta to try and get you to move there. They, They try to help you to see how great Alberta is. Israel was intended to be a God is calling campaign to the nations. As a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, as God's treasured possession, As they lived according to God's ways, they were going to be people who pointed to the God who had saved them. This is what it means to be God's treasured people. But again, uh, as we see in the New Testament, this isn't limited just to Israel. Peter, again, picks up on a lot of this same language to apply to the life of the church, the people of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we read, "'You are a chosen race.'" a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, Peter adds the darkness and light imagery to the story that Israel had already experienced. Once they lived in the darkness of the streets of Egypt, they were that stray dog roaming the streets, abandoned and alone, but now they have been brought into God's life. They've been welcomed into the family, and they're being called to obey in light of what God has done. See, maybe there are some of you who do not yet know the marvelous light that God calls you into, but it's very possible that you are well aware of the present darkness you feel around you. See, like Israel in Egypt, they were uh, without options. They had tried, presumably, everything they could on their own strength, but every day they were pressed and crushed further and further down. And maybe that is how you feel in light of your sin. Maybe you feel the weight of enslavement to the ways you have been living, and you realize that what it brings for you is not freedom like you hoped or freedom like you were promised, but destruction instead. See, to people like you... Because of what God has done in Jesus, there is a life of marvelous light available. See, God invites you, and all you have to do is respond to his God is calling campaign, wherein he invites you to walk in the freedom of his life, to be to him a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, part of his holy nation. But I also know that for many of you, you would say you already belong to those things. You you have received this gift that God extends. And so the question that I asked you is is, uh, similar to what my dad said to me on our drive to my first day of work. Do you live like that's true? Do you realize that every part of your life is designed to be a testimony to the God who has saved you? There's no part of your work life, no part of your family life, no part of your life with your Friends, or at school, or doing the things you enjoy doing. That is not intended to point people to the God who has saved you. That can look like a million different things, but it starts with an awareness of what God has done and who He has made you to be. You are His treasured possession. So, what would it look for you to step forward in obedience and live like it? See, we are a treasured people because God is our saving God. But as Moses completes this story before getting into the next major movement in the book of Exodus, we have one final reminder as to why it matters that we live as treasured people. And it's because our God is a holy God. See, this is the longest section of the story from the last part of verse 9 all the way to verse 25. And what is reiterated to us throughout is that God is indeed a holy God, just as we are supposed to be a holy nation, it is because our God is a holy God, and that's communicated to us in a a couple of different ways in Exodus chapter 19. What what we have in the structure of the chapter is two warning sections, which are uh, around surrounding a dramatic revealing of God's presence in the middle. So we're going to think about those things first: the two warnings, and then how God actually makes Himself. Known The two warnings come to us in verses 10 to 15 and 21 to 25. And I'll summarize them for you. Basically, Moses is told by God to set limits around the mountain where God was going to make himself known. And he was to set these limits because it was to protect the people lest they touch the mountain and die. God is holy, the people are unholy, so if they approach him in an unworthy way, there is nothing left for them but death which is to come. And that would be death which either comes through stoning, even the people responsible for executing this penalty weren't to touch the one who had touched the mountain, or God in verse 24 says he himself will break out against them. So there's the warning about the boundaries which should not be crossed. But then there's also instructions around their garments. They are to wash their clothing. They are to uh, not participate in any kind of sexual intercourse, not because it's dirty, but because it's an act of fasting. All of the warnings are getting them ready for the point wherein they will meet their God. And when we see how that meeting actually happens, the warnings make a lot of sense. See, in verses 16 to 19, the revealing of God's presence is earth-shaking. We read, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. See, they're not even at the mountain yet, and they're already trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. See, I think you and I would tremble as well, because as God makes his presence known, it's with a kind of power that makes it clear this is the God who has saved us. This is the God who made quick work of the most powerful empire of the day, who has brought us out to be his people. And you could spend a lot of time thinking about the the revelation of the power and the might and the presence of God here, how holy and awesome and marvelous he is. But at the same time, there's something about the way that this meeting happens that leaves us with an instinct that it's not yet everything we've been waiting for. And I think that arises because of what's repeated a number of times in the warnings. There are to be barriers set up. God's going to be at the top of the mountain, but the people can't even touch the base of it. They need to keep their distance from this holy God. And the reason that that should feel incomplete to you and to me is is especially clear if you know some of the first stories in your Bible. In, In the book of Genesis, we read, when God first created humans, he walked with them in the garden. He was with them. He knew them in a deep and significant way, and they knew him in a deep and significant way. And yet somehow, between the first stories of the Bible and the one we read in Exodus 19, the need for barriers has arisen. What is it that has caused that problem, that has created that gap between God and the people whom he once walked with? Well, it's the introduction of sin in the world. See, the first people God had made, the ones who knew him closely as their creator who loved them, were the very same people who rebelled against him. He said, we reject you as God over us and we want to be like you. We want to be our own gods, as it were. And in that first act of rebellion, what happened was a wedge was driven between God and the people he once walked closely with, such that the holy God needed to erect barriers to protect the unholy people. But in the past, uh, God was already working to begin bridging that gap. And he did so in a number of different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, First, he did it by way of mediators, right? We read in our story that Moses was called up the mountain to meet with God on behalf of the people. And at the end of our text, we, we see talked about the priests who also were going to be invited in that kind of mediating way. But that wasn't the only way. In fact, there was something required for mediators even to draw near to God. This is why, in His law, God is going to give the people a sacrificial system, wherein certain practices and certain rituals are the way in which they can cleanse themselves to draw near to God temporarily. These are physical signs which physically signify that for this particular period someone can draw near to God but it had to happen over and over. And if you approached God in an unworthy manner, you were opening yourself up to death. That's happened to many people when they approached their holy God in all kinds of irreverent ways. But those were only solutions, temporary as they were, which were pointing to the greater solution God was bringing in Jesus once again. See, just as the Exodus story points ahead, to Jesus and what he was going to do, so too the warnings of holiness preparations point us ahead to the kind of Savior Jesus would be. See, we read in Hebrews 9 verses 13 to 15, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, a number of the different rituals that the people did to cleanse themselves to approach God, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if they deal with outward signs of sin, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, clean us on the inside, from dead works to serve the living God. And verse 15 then goes on to say, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. See, Jesus doesn't just wash our clothes so that we can stand behind a barrier at the foot of the mountain when God is at the top. He does something far more radical and total than that. He cleanses us on the inside so that we can draw near our holy God and live as his treasured people. Uh, There's a famous photo taken in the White House while JFK was the president. And and you probably know the White House is one of the most secure buildings on the continent. Uh, It's in the middle of a highly controlled 15-mile radius area that that monitors what kind of aircraft are flying in and out. Around it, there are all of these ground-to-air missiles to deal with any of those aircraft if they're not responding to instructions. The White House has radar mounted on its roof to detect threats as they approach. The, the bordering fences around the property are equipped with infrared cameras to sense heat if there are people drawing near who shouldn't be. Right? If you want to go and even just do a tour of the White House, you have to figure that out 21 days in advance so a criminal record check can happen so that you can just see the building, let alone meet with anyone who actually works there. It is the most secure place, maybe on the planet, And yet in this famous photo, what you see is JFK sitting near his desk with his kids running and playing on the carpets of the Oval Office. See, that room that you and I could never dream to enter with an audience that we could never hope to demand is the very same room that those kids are playing in to the delight of their father. And it's because they know the one who is there, who is at the center of all of this security that they can draw near as his beloved children. See, this is what Jesus does for you and for me. Yes, our God is a holy God, but as his treasured people, Jesus has made us holy people. So our fiery, thundering, awe-inspiring God, we can approach him as our Father who knows us and who loves us. He is your heavenly Father because Jesus took upon himself your unholiness and gave to you his holiness so you can truly be God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that he has saved to himself. And honestly, this changes everything about it. You know that when he thunders, he thunders for your good. When he brings fire, it is not against you, but against your enemies. He doesn't blow the trumpet sound to go to war against you, but to go to war against sin and death in the world because you are his treasured possession. This is the God who is with you and for you, the one who has saved you to belong to him so that you can be on mission not only to enjoy the life that he has given to you, but also invite others into it. This is who Moses wants the people to see God is. This is who we need to see that God is. And yes, he's going to call us to obey, but in a much larger sense, he is simply calling you to live like you are God's treasured people. So I'm going to pray for us to that end uh, in light of what God has said to us in his word. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for every chance that we get to open it and study it and to meet you in the pages of your scriptures. And so God, as we think about who you are and what you have done for us, and who we are in light of it. God, I ask for the joy that is set before us, for the great gift we have received because of Jesus, that we would be people who live like your treasured possession, delighting to obey what you call us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power. Amen.